Welcome back, everyone. So we'll start again with a 15-minute sitting. And I think today we'll just sit in silence. Uh, you've all are now experienced meditators. So just settle into the awareness of the body, relaxed and alert way.
When you're ready, you can gently open your eyes, become aware of seeing, just reconnecting with your environment. It's very interesting reading uh, the many questions you sent in. It's interesting because they just touch on so many different and often disparate aspects of the Dharma. So it'll be fun to try to respond to the variety of them. So the first question, regarding the self, the sense of self is a hard-earned miracle. I understand seeing through the sense of a solid, unchanging, separate entity, but why do we say there is no self? What does Buddhism consider this essence to be? And then there was another related one. I understand your point about there not being a non-changing ultimate self or us not being our thoughts or emotions. But what about the strong sense of self that although we can't really point to, we just instinctively feel? Is this feeling of self based in delusion? Or is there some kind of self that we just don't fully understand? And the last one in this category, you talk about conceit and wrong view in describing a feeling of and a belief in self. But don't you agree that something is happening to something in this world? When we experience a witness in mindfulness, even though that witness seems not to have qualities or cravings, isn't that a something that things are appearing to? So this uh, question of non-self. So the last holdout really of the sense of self is our usually unconscious and deeply habituated identification with knowing. Because even as we can see that the body is changing and the different elements and bodily sensations and thoughts and feelings, you know, and emotions, we can see relatively easily that that's all in a process of change. But still we have the belief or the felt sense of, well, I'm the one knowing it all, right? So we create in that identification with knowing, we're creating the a sense of a witness or an observer. The challenge then is how do we cut through this very subtle and hard to see identification with consciousness itself? Right? The identification with knowing so that it creates a knower. So I want to just offer a few different approaches to investigating this issue. And there are ways of possibly beginning to cut through or to see through this identification with the knowing or with consciousness. So the first way has to do with how this process is understood in these Theravada teachings. And I'm going to talk about a few different ways uh, of cutting through with other traditions as well. But in the Theravada way of understanding this whole process, this mind-body process, what we're calling self is the pairwise progression, moment after moment, of knowing an object. 
knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. And the objects can be any one of the six basic elements I spoke of the other day. Knowing a sight, knowing a sound, a smell, a taste, a sensation, knowing some mind experience. Right? So consciousness is actually arising anew with each moment, with each new object uh, of awareness. It's not the same consciousness that is carried through. And there's one discourse in the text where the Buddha was very explicit about just this point, that consciousness itself is arising and passing in each moment. In the course of Vipassana practice, as the mind settles and we become a bit more concentrated and go through various uh, perspectives, and we can say stages of understanding, there's a stage, and this is not a super advanced stage. It comes just sort of in the beginning of our practice. Once the mind has settled down a bit, we begin to have the experience of this pairwise progression. You know, knowing, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object. At a certain point, you know, once we see that, and that is, the, that is really the first real glimpse of selflessness, right? And it's interesting, that stage of understanding is called purification of view. So it's just the beginning. It's the beginning of our understanding of it. But we're beginning to see or have an understanding of the basic framework of how our life is unfolding. It's just these moments knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, knowing an object, arising, passing. As the practice continues, at a certain point, we also begin to emphasize, and this just happens naturally, it's not a decision, we begin to see more the disappearing aspect of objects. So rather than just seeing everything arising, 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 we're seeing the continue of falling away, falling away, falling away of this pair wise progression. And so then we're really seeing the dissolution of consciousness itself moment after moment. So this is a powerful cutting through the identification with consciousness as being self, as being I. And so it no longer, there's no longer a knower, but simply knowing. No witness, but rather witnessing. Okay, so this is one way that we cut through this identification with knowing. Another way, and this is something I mentioned in the last couple of days, using the passive voice construction, right, of things being known. And this can be done in a very, a very simple way. You know, just going for a walk and feeling the sensations of the movement or the sensations of touch, they're just being known being known, being known, being known. And again, just through that linguistic frame of reference of changing our usual way instead of I'm knowing, just things being known, again, we're taking the self out of the process and we have the direct experience of it. And if, you know, at a certain time you get comfortable in that mode, even you know, for relatively short periods of time, but we just settle into that frame of things being known and experiencing them in that way, 
then there's a very interesting question known by what and so that's a kind of turning the mind back onto the knowing itself and trying to really get an understanding of the nature of this knowing mind. But the passive voice construction is another way of cutting through the identification with consciousness. And the third way I'll mention really comes from the Zen tradition. And there's this Zen story of Bodhidharma, you know, who was kind of an Indian adept who, who brought the teachings to China. And out of his teachings, the whole tradition of Chan and later Zen developed. So a disciple came to Bodhidharma, a seeker. He wasn't yet a disciple, but he would become one. So a seeker came to Bodhidharma and said, you know, I'm suffering so much. My mind is in such distress. Can you please help me? And Bodhidharma says, show me your mind and I'll help you. And the seeker says, I've looked for it everywhere and I can't find it. And then Bodhidharma says, there, it's already pacified. So this is more than just a uh, clever Zen story. This is pointing really to a direct way for us to investigate. And so that goes back to the question, you know, things being known, known by what? And then when we look, when we look back, we see there's nothing to find and yet the knowing is happening. So that's the great mystery of consciousness. And another way of understanding the selflessness of no knowing is this quality of its unfindability, right? So one way to, to experiment and investigate this for yourself, and sometimes I just uh, play with this in my own practice. So I'll be sitting and maybe sounds are arising. You know, and I'm just so the sounds are being known. And then I'll, I'll ask the question in my mind, can I find what's knowing the sound? Can I find it? And then I'll look, I'll look to see and realize I can't find it and yet the knowing is happening. So that's kind of the great mystery of this whole process of how the knowing is going along without a knower, without a being identified with it. And so this is important and it addresses that question of how even when we notice that so much of our experience is changing and passing away, you know, we still are carrying this felt sense of someone here. And I think it really has to do with this process of being identified with the knowing. And that is, that is creating that, that sense of someone there, of a knower. So I just encourage you to explore, investigate this in some of the ways I mentioned. Okay.
Regarding desire, are you saying that desire is the same thing as craving or clinging? Would you say that without some kind of wholesome desire, there may not be a Buddha? Is there a desire, a life force that is the fuel for our spiritual seeking? So there's no more need to seek. Okay, so this question comes up quite a lot because the word in desire, the word in English, desire, has so many different meanings. And if we're not really defining which meaning uh, we're employing, it can get confusing. Because one meaning of desire, we could say it's, it's an aspiration, you know, an aspiration for enlightenment, for awakening, to be more compassionate, right? Or it could be a desire just to fulfill basic needs, you know, a desire to eat when we're hungry. So desire in these examples is not involved with greed. It's not involved with clinging. But another meaning of desire is associated with greed, you know, with clinging and grasping. So just, just as an example of how you might experientially distinguish the two, and this is something that I'm sure will be very familiar to all of you and all of us. You know, when you're hungry and there's a desire for food. So that's just a natural, that's just a natural phenomenon. And it's appropriate to eat. But then when we're full, when we've really eaten the appropriate amount, we're full, we're nourished, our bodies and lives are sustained. And then we want more. Oh, that was delicious. Let me have more. And we overeat. You know, we overindulge. So that's the desire of greed. That's the desire of clinging. That's the desire of grasping. Two very different mind states, even though we're using the same word. So I would just check, you know, when, when we say I have a desire for something, check to see whether it falls on the wholesome side of things, you know, an aspiration for something either beneficial, uh, just as a natural process, like sustaining our body with food or, you know, a spiritual path, you know, a desire to become more loving, more compassionate, or when the desire is meaning the greedy quality of mind. And it's not that hard to see the difference. Okay, so when you mention that there can be a state of tranquility, is there a way to realize that it is tranquility and not loss and torpor? So I really appreciated that question because it's going to give me a chance to talk about sloth and talk more. There is a way of distinguishing the two of calm from sloth and torpor, because with sloth and, sloth and torpor, it's usually associated with sleepiness and usually with a quality of dullness in the mind. You know, where things are not clear, dull, and maybe nodding off a bit. That's an important meaning of sloth and torpor. Whereas calm or tranquility is very clear. You know, when, when the mind is calm, calm is actually one of the factors of enlightenment. You know, and I, I think in, in our practice, 
in a way, it's an unappreciated quality, underappreciated quality as something to develop. Because calm provides just a quality of ease in our mind and body that, that allows us to see clearly. So you wanna really take a look to see, is there dullness in the mind, sleepiness in the mind, or is it just tranquil and peaceful with clarity in the mind? But here it can get a little interesting because there's actually a connection between calm and sloth and torpor, which I found really useful in working with sloth and torpor and sleepiness. You know, I'm sure you've heard there are many, many remedies, you know, of opening the eyes and standing up and putting water on one's face, lots of different practical remedies. But one thing I began to notice is that in a state of dullness or a state of sleepiness, there is a thread of calm in that. You know, when the mind is sleepy, it's not restless. You know, and calm is the opposite of restlessness. And so even within the sleepiness where that's the predominant state, I found that if there's enough energy to be interested in it and to investigate, and I look into the sleepiness, it's possible to find the quality of calm within it and then to focus on that. So it's like pulling the thread of calm out of the sloth and torpor and really energizing that particular thread of calm. So that, that would be an interesting way for you to practice when sloth and torpor is present. And also when the mind is calm, just generally is in a tranquil state, acknowledge that, you know, and understand that this is a wholesome state of mind. It's a factor of enlightenment. And so you want to cultivate it, not get attached to it, but it is something to develop. Now, there's one other aspect of sloth and torpor, which I want to mention because it's not usually talked about in this way, but I found that it highlighted an arena that was very applicable for me in my practice. And that is another meaning of sloth and torpor, aside from sleepiness and dullness, is that quality of mind which retreats from difficulties. You know, so in the face of difficulty, we just retreat from it. We don't want to deal with it. We don't have the energy to deal with it. So it's that retreating mode. I found this very illuminating when I recognized that this also was an aspect of sloth and torpor. Then when I found myself pulling back from engaging with difficulties, whether it was you know, difficult physical sensations or difficult mind states. You know, I, I'm sure you're familiar with the feeling, oh, I just don't want to deal with this, you know, and pulling back from it, not engaging. It was very helpful to me to recognize that, oh, that's sloth and torpor. Right? That, that's the working of those mind states. And just recognizing that actually inspired me then to make a little more effort to bring more energy. And at times for me, I found one mantra 
particularly helpful, but it has to be used very judiciously because it's not always helpful, but there are times when it is. And so my mantra in these situations was choose the difficult. Because my general inclination, both in meditation and in life, is to choose the easy. You know, and I just noticed that pattern in myself. Uh, that's what I'll go for. But there are times when choosing the difficult is actually what raises energy, you know, and what enables us to engage, you know, in a really productive and fruitful way in whatever experience is in front of us. So you might see for yourself at that time, either because of an inclination, you know, always going for the easeful or a certain sense of laziness or the sloth and torpor, you know, retreating from difficulty. At those times, you might try out this mantra. Oh, choose the difficult. Go for it. See what happens. Of course, if one is overstriving, you know, or getting uptight or whatever, then choose the difficult is not the right approach. That's when we need to relax and settle back. But it can be used in a judicious way. Okay, I have to find these questions. I didn't take them in order. In a previous session, moods were mentioned, uh, specifically like waking up on the wrong side of the bed. There's also non-clinical depression in others. It's like the brain is telling the mind, you think you're in charge, guess again. Is there any way to work with these moods? So this is, I think, a really interesting question. And there was a, there is a psychologist, his name is Paul, Paul Ekman, I think is his name. He made an interesting distinction between moods and emotions. And he said that emotions are like singular events usually quite strong, and we usually know the cause of them, right? You know, we feel angry or we feel excited or something like that. And so the emotion is clear. You know, it's a strong emotion, it's clear to us often. And we usually can trace back the cause for that emotion to arise. Moods are much more subtle. They're much more diffuse. It's like in the question, you know, it's like waking up on the wrong side of the bed. We don't quite know why we're in a down mood. We don't necessarily know the causes, but it's just kind of a background pervasive, pervasive feeling. This can be challenging to work with. So I just want to suggest a few ways. First, I had a very uh, humorous experience. At one time I was on retreat, this in terms of whether we can recognize this, the causes of our mood, you know, or not. Sometimes we miss, <laughs> a big miss. So I was on retreat and I was just doing walking meditation and just feeling world weirdness. Yeah, just the world felt so heavy and I felt weighed down and burdened by it. And it was not how I usually feel. And so it was quite striking to me. And I just began interpreting it as 
oh, this must be really an insight into dukkha, into the first noble truth, just you know, the pervasiveness uh, of the unsatisfying nature of things. And maybe this is just by deepening insight, you know, into this. And so I was walking and feeling this way and reflecting on it in this way. And then, <laughs> you know, after a few minutes, I burped <laughs> and the whole mood dissipated. So all my big understanding of world weariness and the truth of dukkha was a bit misplaced. So this is this is just by way of saying we we often don't know exactly the causes of why we feel, you know, we're in some mood. But regardless of whether we do or don't know, the question is how can we become mindful of them? You know, so we're not lost, we're not caught up, we're not identified, we're not drowning in our moods. First, it's to understand that they're not clearly defined objects. They're not like a sensation or a sound or even a thought or strong emotion, which, you know, we, we can recognize them pretty easily. Not that we always do, but they're usually pretty well defined. A mood is much more amorphous. You know, there's a gossamer quality to it. And so our mindfulness has, to, we have to employ our mindfulness in a very particular way. It's not, it's not like this strong directing the mind towards the object because we'll probably just direct it right through it. There's nothing, it's not substantial enough to uh, work within that way. What I found helpful when there's some kind of mood or even simply as a way of checking to see if there's some mood going on, you know, maybe very subtle, not even aware of, it's more a settling back and becoming very receptive to very open to letting whatever is there, letting it in. So we're not narrowing, we're not trying to narrow our attention you know, onto some specific object. We're just, it's like, it's just like settling back, opening up and getting a feel for it you know, and just being receptive in that way. And then very often we can come to an awareness of what it is that we're feeling. And in that awareness, being mindful of it, mindfulness meaning again, as a reminder, that we're aware of it without identifying with it, without claiming it as being I'm in mind. But no, the mood arose out of conditions, whatever the conditions may have been, even if we're not aware of them, it's another passing state. So we can be receptive. It's very soft. It's a very soft quality that's needed to become aware of moods. But it's very helpful to do because if we're not mindful of them, it's like they become the filter through which we're looking at all of our experience. It's like putting on a pair of colored glasses and not even realizing we're seeing the world 
through that those particular lenses. You know, so when moods are there and we're not aware of them, not mindful, they are really conditioning, you know, our experience and our perception of the world. So this is an important, somewhat subtle aspect of our practice and mindfulness. And as I just mentioned, even if we're not aware that there's a particular mood present, I find it helpful just periodically to check in, you know, just going along and, oh, is there some mood present? Am I feeling something? And that sometimes can reveal something that's going on that we weren't even aware of. So the last thing I want to say about working with moods, and so what I'm about to say is applicable to everything, but specifically with moods, because often we forget to do it, especially with a strong one, you know, where we're feeling, I don't know, we may be feeling down in some way or frustrated or something. You know, there's, there's some mind state that's going on that is really influencing, you know, our experience. You know, in doing and practicing, trying to be mindful in the ways that just suggested, but also remembering that it's going to pass. Because we can get so enmeshed, you know, in our stories of things, you know, or how we're feeling. We can get so caught up in it and so identified with it. And even though we know better, there's often the feeling of, oh, this is going to last forever. You know, and uh, you know, intellectually, we know that's not true, but we're often burdened in the experience of it. It somehow feels like that. So it's very helpful. And it just gives, a, it gives us a perspective, you know, which allows us, especially if it's you know, some kind of unpleasant mood or experience, it just gives us some perspective that allows us to be with it with greater ease, knowing, yeah, this is going to pass, and it's going to probably pass much more quickly than we think. This is an aside, and I don't remember whether I mentioned it, you know, in this course, because it's one of my favorite reflections, so uh, I talk about it often. But whenever I'm caught up in some difficulty or conflict or whatever, some kind of suffering, I like to change my time reference, you know, and start instead of being so caught up in what's happening right now, when I'm feeling stuck, you know, and caught, I just remind myself to take more of a historical perspective. And so just one example of this, quite a few years ago, I read this biography of Genghis Khan. Yeah, and he was like 13th century, something like that. He rules a vast empire, you know, most of Asia, and I think even perhaps some of Europe, and vast empire. Yeah, he was, he was, he was the big man in those days. So I'd like to ask you a question. How many of you today thought of Genghis Khan? <laughs> probably unless you were reading the book, you probably have not been thinking of him, right? So here's this figure who is, you know, a world figure, a world dominating figure, 
but in the long sweep of history, hey, Carmen had all this influence and then passed away. So if that's true of somebody like that, and you know, it's true of everything, when I put my own particular situation, whatever it might be, into that context, I realize it's not only it's it's not even going to take four centuries to to have this recede. You know, it may take a few days or weeks or whatever, but it it doesn't it it weakens or loosens the intensity of the dukkha and involvement in it. So I just offer that because it's been very helpful for me just to bring in, you know, this time perspective as a reminder of the truth of change. How do you work with perfectionist tendencies in this practice? My lifelong habit of wanting to do this perfectly or right shows up in my body and mind during practice as tightness, gripping, laser focus instead of soft focus, etc. It's been hard to stay motivated to practice because the approach itself is so unpleasant. So this is really important because how we practice you know, will very, very much influence, as the question indicated, the quality of our experience. So this perfectionist quality of mind, obviously, and I'm, I'm sure it's clear to you, that it involves a lot of grasping and wanting a certain outcome, wanting it to be a certain way. So if this is a strong tendency, a strong, it's strongly conditioned for whatever reason, there are ways of countering that tendency. So I'll just mention a few, and it's a gradual, it's a gradual deconditioning of that kind of grasping approach to practice, wanting it to be perfect. There's a way of gradually deconditioning that habit, you know, and coming to practice in a more open, relaxed way. So one way might be, you know, in the beginning of each sitting, and maybe, you know, for some time, maybe for five minutes, first five minutes, or even the first 10 minutes, just practice hearing meditation. That's what you're just sitting and listening to whatever sounds may be coming. You know, so you're not looking for any particular sound. You're just sitting and whatever sounds happen to appear. It may be, you know, loud, very particular sounds. It may be some kind of background sound. It may just be the ambient sounds in the room. Maybe it's the sound of silence. You know, where there's no particular sound, but you're, you're tuning in, you're hearing the silence. But hearing, for most people, is very effortless. You know, the sounds arise and we don't have to make an effort to hear. And so if we just start with hearing, it's really a way of settling into letting the mind become very open, very spacious. You know, it's like sitting in space and the sounds are appearing in the space. And you get hopefully a sense of the easefulness of awareness. 
that we don't have to be making this intense effort to be aware. Basically, we just have to remember, remember, yeah, okay. Can I just sit here and know what's happening? And so this ties in, in a way, to the whole discussion on the passive voice framework. So we're just sitting, sounds being known. That's all, sounds being known. So we'll just do a little experiment now, a hands-on experiment, illustrating the easefulness of using this passive voice. So if uh, you're willing, simply move your arm and feel it moving. It's just moving and you're feeling it moving, that's all. You're feeling it movement, and as you're feeling the movement, it's just the movement is being known. Does that take any effort at all? No, you're just feeling it, and it's being known. It's quite effortless. So you might practice just doing things like this, or in the walking, you know, instead of the sense of I've got to be perfect in it. It's just taking a step and feeling it. So one change of language, again, which reflects what I've just been talking about. And I may have mentioned this uh, maybe on the first day, you know, so much of meditative language that we use is watching language, watch, notice, observe, and so when we use that language to ourselves to describe our practice, that can sometimes be problematic because it implies a kind of, okay, tracking experience. Okay, moving the arm and I have to track it, right? So observing it using that language might be contributing to this whole, I have to do it perfectly. If you change the language from observing or noticing language to feeling language. You're just moving the arm and feeling it. That makes all the difference because the feeling is from the inside. It's not like we're up here trying to keep track. It's just feeling it. It's like doing yoga or Tai Chi or it's so simple. So move and you're just feeling the movement. In that, there's, no, there's nothing to perfect. <laughs> it's like it's already here. So just one other example of this, and this Saito Utejaniya speaks about this a lot when he's emphasizing the effortlessness of awareness. And I think that it's just an important reminder. He says, okay, if you sit for a moment with your eyes closed, and then you open your eyes. Does it take any effort to see? I don't think so. <laughs> the seeing just happens. And we open our eyes and we're seeing, we're aware. So it's highlighting the fact that the capacity for awareness is already here. And as I say, it's more a question of just remembering that so we don't get caught up in extraneous patterns, you know, of our meditation practice. 
And I remember one time I was on retreat and I found myself caught in the striving mode. So I don't know, I just had some idea of, you know, real goal orientation, even though having a goal is fine as an aspiration, but as an expectation, it can become very problematic. So when I saw, I was just striving in some unwholesome way. So I used a phrase that just reminded me of what I just was talking about in terms of the effortlessness of seeing or hearing. The phrase I used was, was actually two different phrases. Already aware, already aware, or already here. I don't have to get someplace else. It's already here. And just reminding myself of that, it totally cut through that kind of striving mode. And I was just back, aware of what was arising in the moment. So these are just different ways of beginning to decondition this perfectionist conditioning, striving, wanting, you know, and reminding oneself in these variety of ways that we can be receptive, you know, and more relaxed and trust that awareness will be there. Okay. So this is an interesting one. Can you talk about how to remove the personal nature of conceit when judgments about others arise? For example, a friend sent me a photo of her and her four kids on an airplane not wearing masks. And I instantly felt judgmental, angry, and fearful. How can I remove the I in that type of experience? So this is an important question because the judging mind is just so common. You know, I, I see it in myself a lot and I've been working with so many meditators over all these years. It just comes up again and again. You know, how the mind can so easily, you know, just drop into this reactive judgment. So first I'd just like to speak about working with judgment in general and then talk a little more specifically about that particular example. So I've developed a few techniques in working with the judging mind. One is, and I've suggested this to others and I've practiced it myself when this pattern was running rampant at a particular time, just started counting the judgments. Judgment every time, every time I became aware of a judgment in my mind. Judgment one, judgment two, judgment 56, judgment 598, judgment 3000, you know, whatever. And it was kind of interesting to see how high a number I got to. But what happened just by doing that simple exercise counting the judgments, at a certain point, I just started to smile. Because it was obviously so ridiculous. It was just one of these ridiculous patterns of mind that we get caught in. And by the time I reached some rather high number, the ridiculousness of it became so apparent, I just started smiling. So this is the key to freeing ourselves from being so caught by the judging mind. That is not taking them seriously. You know, 
where we really see them as just being an empty thought in the mind coming and going. So it's a question of not believing them, but also not having aversion to them. Because if we have aversion to the judgment, that also is strengthening them. That's feeding them. It's actually giving it an importance, which in its essential nature, it doesn't have. It's just another empty thought coming and going. So having a sense of humor about one's mind and the crazy things it often does, a sense of humor is so helpful in terms of just lightening up about it all. And it frees us from a lot of our reactivity. So that, that was one very helpful way of working with the pattern of judging. Another one that was very instructive and it relates somewhat to the specific question, although there are more things in the question to explore. So one time I was on retreat at IMS and this goes back many years. And I remember walking into the dining room and having a judgment, a comment about almost everybody in the room. You know, a judgment about what they were wearing or how fast or slow they were moving, how much food they take. It, again, it was totally ridiculous, but that's what the mind was doing. So at a certain point, I, again, I just became interested. Why, why is this happening? And I realized that all of these judgments had their root, their source, in the fact that I was seeing unmindfully. Come into the dining room and I was just seeing all these different people, but not mindful that I was seeing. And therefore it just triggered you know, this whole train. So then I just started noting seeing, as soon as I would walk into the dining room, seeing, 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 all the way to getting my food, sitting down at the table. It was amazing by being mindful of that sense contact right at the, right at the sense base, seeing, seeing, by being mindful rather than unmindful, 99% of the judgments were gone. So that, that was really interesting. You know, when we see, okay, what's the underlying cause of the pattern? Okay, so now with this particular question and when there's a judgment and then it involves a strong reactivity, you know, so this person saw, you know, this picture and it just triggered, you know, anger and fear and uh, different emotions and then got caught up in them. So when there's that strong reactivity, Activity in the mind, even after has one, even after one has noticed, oh yeah, this was a judgment, but then, you know, we're really reactive in it. It's really helpful to investigate the nature of that reaction and our relationship to it, because there is a difference between discernment and reactivity. So we might have seen that picture of the woman and the children on the plane without masks. And that could have been the discernment. Oh, that's not skillful, you know? And that would be a wise discernment, but that would be free of that anger, you know, or the fear or whatever the emotion was. So when the reactivity is there, then that becomes our responsibility. That no longer has anything to do with what that woman and her children were doing on the plane. 
if we're caught in a strong reactivity, which is different than simple discernment and wisdom, that reactivity, that's up to us to explore and understand. So one of the things, and I think this was an example, uh, perhaps, but it, it certainly is general, generally applicable. Why do we get so caught up, you know, in angry judgments or angry reactions? So the Buddha had a, a very incisive little phrase. He said, anger with its poisoned source and honeyed tip. Right? So there's something very seductive about this feeling of anger, you know, and in so many situations. And it very often is tied to the sense of being right, you know. So there's, there's often this quality of self-righteousness in the anger. Well, I'm right. And it says, the dubious pleasure of being right, that honey tip, and we miss the poison source of it, you know, the anger, which the anger is a state of suffering. So we could justify it to ourselves in all kinds of ways, or it should be angry, and, you know, that feeling of self-righteousness. But meanwhile, we're the ones who are suffering. So again, wise discernment does not require self-righteousness, right? doesn't require attachment to being right. And yet those are the feelings that very often solidify, you know, this reactivity, you know, and we're caught by that. So I want to read something that's related to this in terms of reactivity. And this had to do with, this is a teaching from the Buddha, and it had to do more with when we're reactive to how people are speaking to us, but it could relate to any way that people are impacting us, you know, and we have this strong reactivity. And I'll just preface it by saying, this is a very high bar that the Buddha is laying out, but I find it very inspiring because it points to a direction and it can become an aspiration for us to practice it. So this is what he said. There are five courses of speech that others may use when they address you. Their speech may be timely or untimely, true or untrue, gentle or harsh, connected with good or with harm, spoken with a mind of loving kindness or with a mind of inner hate. So these are all the ways people might address us. Here you should train yourself thus. Our minds will remain unaffected. We shall utter no unskillful words. We shall abide compassionate for their welfare with a mind and heart of loving kindness. You know, so... Just imagine the situation, somebody's lying to you and speaking angrily and harshly, all of that. And the Buddha is saying, our minds, we should train ourselves, our minds will remain unaffected. Shall utter no unskillful words. 
abide compassionate for their welfare with a heart of loving kindness. So again, it's pointing to this very important basic Dharma principle that how we feel and how we relate to others, even more importantly, that's totally up to us. And so if we can at times, even in the moment of you know, having unpleasant things come at us, whether it's through words or through seeing something that we think is uh, wrong, if right in the moment we can remember this and again, be in this space of discernment rather than reactivity, that would be great. And then it would be easier to maybe find that place of compassion. But even after this, you know, that would be, <laughs> that would be uh, an advanced practice. But even if we find ourselves having become reactive, if we remember this as a teaching and as a training, rather than just kind of stew in our own reactivity attached to being right, you know, and having that be the cause of our stuckness, if we can remember this teaching and say, no, I can, I can free my heart from this. I can free my mind from this, you know, and we go to the place even retroactively of clear discernment. And so then our hearts at ease. And in fact, our response, if there's some response possible, will be much more skillful. Okay, so there were quite a few more questions, but just as the last one, because the schedule is a little different today, I remember the question. So there was somebody who was interested in exploring the classical texts, but didn't know even where to begin, you know, because there's so many. I mean, the, the, there's many, many volumes, you know, of the Buddhist teachings. So we'll put this on the... Uh, a resource page also, but one one place to start, I think, would be a book by Bhikkhu Bodhi called In the Buddha's Words. And it's an anthology of teachings from the Pali Canon. And Bhikkhu Bodhi is a wonderful translator of the text. And really reading anything he wrote, he writes very clearly and he's his translations are very clear and his own exposition you know, of the text, very clear. So I would really recommend that you look for things he's written and this book in particular, in terms of reading the texts themselves, uh, it's a very good anthology. Again, in the Buddha's words. And just a word about the value of study. You know, our practice, our own meditation practice and experience is always limited. You know, we, we have limited experience. And by studying the Buddhist teachings, it really is a chance to enlarge our understanding. And if we read, as I've been talking about over these days, if we take the teachings and read them as instructions to us, sometimes we'll just come across, you know, in reading one phrase or one particular teaching that really speaks to us. And we can then put it into practice, take it as an instruction. And for me, this has been such a valuable way of deepening my understanding of the depth and breadth 
of the Buddhist teachings. And it has really been transformative. For those of you who might be interested in exploring this, I would highly recommend it. Okay, well, it's really been great, even though uh, we're doing this uh, virtually. It's really been a pleasure to be with you all. So today's schedule is a little bit different. We're going to take a 15-minute break now. And in 15 minutes, Kamala is going to be giving just a short talk, which really invite and encourage you all to come back for. So let's just sit for you know a minute or two and let, let it all settle. May all beings be at peace. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.